From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, this week in Vancouver, British Columbia. On this week's edition, why former EPA head Gina McCarthy is still bullish on environmental protection, why business needs women to lead on the SDGs, the power of brands to promote sustainability, and what would drive even more electric buses into U.S. cities. We are getting off at the next stop this week on 350. It's March 16th, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me this week, uh, back from her travels, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, how was your trip? Where were you? Tell us about it. <laughs> Hello, Joel. Good to be back, I think. Uh, I was in Rotan, Honduras. It is an island um, off of the coast of Honduras. You actually can see it, see the coast from, uh, from my island that I was on. And I was diving. I logged 16 dives last week, so spent a lot of time underwater. And now I'm looking out at other water, like frozen water, snow, <laughs> here in New Jersey, after after the the series of nor'easters that has come through. Yeah. Well, let's 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 not dwell on that. Let's go back to a week, uh, uh, Rotan, which uh, most people haven't heard of. It's spelled R-O-A-T-A-N. You, you've been diving for a long time. Uh, you and your husband are successful and certified and all that good stuff. What are you seeing? Is, it, is there anything that you're noticing as you dive that's different? Yeah, I, I have to say, and it's not a good thing. Um, well, I will tell you a, a bad thing and a good thing. The bad thing um, I, that I noticed on this particular trip, this island I've been to three times. Um, it's a it's known as a really good place for diving because you can see both big things like whale sharks and small things like seahorses. There's a lot of good seahorse um, sightings that happen. And we saw, we actually saw like five different ones, all different colors, yellow, white and brown, you know, orange. It's, it's just um, amazing. Um, the yellow ones are particularly unusual. And we saw a good amount of, of life um, like, like we have in the past. But I also saw... Um, more coral bleaching than, than I have seen in the past, more um, compromised reefs. The, the, the reefs in, in that particular place have been very healthy, and, and that's why, why people, so many people go there. You know, I don't know if it's the acidification or the warmth or what, but um, I definitely noticed a difference. We were there last time about three years ago, I think it was, and I noticed a difference, which kind of bummed me out. I also noticed more... Um, waste like plastic in the water than than in the past which again i was like oh gosh you know not a good thing on the flip side among the good things is uh uh, if any anyone who dives out there knows that the caribbean has been um fighting the scourge of the lionfish the lionfish is not native to the caribbean waters it about 10 or i guess maybe 12 years ago now just it was introduced in the waters i think by a series of accidents in in various places and the challenge is that these things like when they have when they spawn they they spawn like in the thousands so like a lionfish has 50,000 or whatever uh, babies at a time and there have been no natural predators in in the Caribbean waters they're usually found off of like Africa and other places so 
If you go diving in the Caribbean, you will notice in many places just incredible amounts of lionfishes. They're very beautiful. Um, uh, they, they've got gorgeous uh, fins and so forth, very poisonous. Um, and it's in, they're also very ravenous, so they eat a lot of the other fish. So that's the bad thing. Um, the good thing is in, in the Rotan has managed to figure out a way of controlling them. So they've actually been, and this may sound cruel, but they've, they have the dive masters will injure the lionfish or, you know, maybe, uh, poke it with a, with a, a spear or something like this and leave them for the grouper and for other predators. So they've been teaching, they've been teaching the fish how to be predators to, to the lionfish. And so they've got, I, I, there's far fewer lionfish than I've ever seen in Rotan. There were far fewer. Usually I would see like, I don't know, five or 10 a dive. And I saw maybe five the whole time I was there. So that was a positive and I'll leave on that one. Um, <laughs> so, so human intervention into the food chain. I mean, that doesn't feel like a winning proposition, but we'll see. I don't know how that it, story it definitely ends. Controlled. Now you said you were in Vancouver. Why are you in Vancouver? A beautiful city, but why are you there? Uh, it's the globe conference. The globe conference is this, um, Going on since 1990, it's uh, biennial every two years. Uh, it's, they build themselves as North America's largest and longest-running leadership summit for sustainable business. Um, I hadn't been there for a few years, but uh, I, I had an opportunity to come up and, uh, and uh, host a, a session um, called Hacking the Future, how AI, how artificial intelligence can boost resiliency and improve conservation. So this is uh, very close to our hearts in, in Verge world around technology meeting sustainability. And uh, had in the panel, uh, Michelle Patron from uh, Microsoft, uh, Milan Tambe, professor from University of Southern California, Zach Ferdanya from the Nature Conservancy, a senior program manager there, and Kathleen Gobush, who's uh, a senior wildlife researcher uh, for Paul Allen's Vulcan uh, Inc. in the Paul Allen Philanthropy. So a really good conversation. Um, and Globe is an interesting. It's, you know, they get uh, a good crowd, uh, you know, several thousand, a few thousand people, I guess. Um, and it's primarily, it's very uh, Canadian-centric, even Yay! though even though Globe may, the Globe people may not want to admit that it is. Uh, very Canadian-centric, which is which is interesting and different, and it's um, uh, both the Canadian divisions of of U.S. and European and and Asian companies, but also a lot of uh, very uh, Canadian-centric companies and initiatives. So it's it's great to see uh, how our friends north of the border are, are looking at sustainability. Of course, uh, British Columbia, where Vancouver sits, is the California of Canada in terms of their, their very progressive leadership and progressive uh, environmental and climate policy. So uh, it's, it's just always great to uh, just, you know, get even a little bit uh, of distance from, from the U.S. It's not much distance when you're in Vancouver, uh, just across the border from Seattle, basically. But um, I really, uh, it was great to go back to Globe after uh, quite a number of years not being there. So I'll have some uh, interviews uh, next week uh, from my time in Vancouver this week, um, in the same way that uh, a little bit later in this program, uh, we're going to have a piece this week from my time in Anaheim uh, last week, specifically the uh, conversation I had with former US EPA administrator Gina McCarthy. So it's where in the world is Joel McCower? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'll be here for a while, although my next, my next trip in early April, I'm looking forward to this, 
is to Muncie, Indiana. Yes, Muncie, Indiana. You heard that right? Which is the home you do you know what the home is? The home of uh, collegiately? I do not know. Yeah, no, I'm sure most people don't. It's uh, Ball State University, somewhat famous as being David Letterman's alma mater, but uh, having a lot more than that. And and but for my purposes, and we'll talk about this more in early April when I'm there. Is is it's in the in the heartland, and it's a it, it's a community, not just university. I'll be doing a couple day residency there, speaking to a number of different groups, the business community, the, the agricultural community. Uh, they are looking at, at at sort of where do we go from here? And uh, my 2016 book, uh, co-author of the New Grand Strategy, is going to be the focus of how do you look regionally at resilience and sustainability and prosperity and security. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That's my next trip. But that's for another day. Let's deal with this day. And for now, let's go to the Week in Review. So um, our newly minted senior writer, Katie Fehrenbacher, who we uh, had uh, say hello on the program last week and will feature again later in this program, but she, she uh, showed up with a couple of great stories and, and uh, one of them has to do with buses. Yes, and uh, I am looking forward to meeting Katie next week when I'm out there visiting you in Oakland, California. But um, yes, the piece that I came back to um, you know, was one of the first things I did when I got back online Monday was read Katie's story called Here's What Would Drive Even More Electric Buses Into U.S. Cities. She's explores just sort of the financial models that are coming up. So, um, you know, we know that, that cities have limited budgets. They have to make these, these cost cases. But we do see a lot of um, cities, New York, um, Park City, investing in, in, Ut- uh, in Utah, Utah yeah. right? Investing in bus, in electric buses. And okay, how can they do this? Well, it turns out that there are some interesting leasing models. Um, in Park City, for example, the city leases um, buses, batteries, um, and, and Proterra, is, it's doing this Proterra, and um, they're, they're sort of looking at it as a, as a fuel expense, right? So they're, they're, they're looking at ways to put the cost of these buses into the operational budget. Um, not just the capex budget, so it it helps make the cost look lower, right, um, for the electric buses and it, it, a better value proposition. Because we know, I mean, th- that's the biggest challenge with any of these new technologies, um, or one of them, is how do you finance it? How do you get it in? So this piece really is looking at sort of the alternative financing models that could make electric buses more possible. Um, New York. New York, um, the MTA there, they have the biggest bus fleet in the United States, and they're leasing five Proterra electric buses. They're, tr- they're trying this out over a three-year model. Um, so there's a lot, there's, you know, this is one of those things where um, experimentation will help drive, if you will, the, the, the adoption of these things. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting here is, is that it's not just uh, a new-ish technology, electric buses and the drivetrains and all of that that go on, but it's the, it's, it's the business model. And um, the traditional business model is you sell a city a bus or lease it, perhaps. Um, but that's not necessarily the way this, this needs to go anymore. And, and I was thinking uh, in, in reading this piece about the, the great pioneering work that Rolls-Royce, uh, of all companies, of course, we know them for cars, but they, they, they also uh, make uh, aircraft engines. And 56 years ago, in, in 1962, 
they created uh, trademarked something called Power by the Hour, which is it's it's uh, basically an approach to engine maintenance management that that you know has been their their calling card for a long time and it's basically we're not going to sell you an engine we're going to sell you power by the hour you're going to pay based on on performance so it's this instead of selling an aircraft engine they're selling the service that engine provides um you know we've seen that you know turning a product into a service in in a number of other areas we'll see a lot more of that you know from you know, carpeting as a as a f- you know floor covering service, where you're leasing the services instead of buying the carpeting, uh, was was one popular meme back uh, you know 10, 20, 15 years ago from Interface, uh, and that's but we're seeing that a lot more now, and I think that that's where how we're going to enable some of these technologies that are let's call them premium priced into uh, budget strapped uh, cities. By creating these um, these things that, as you say, you know, come not out of capital expenditure but an operating expenditure, much the way you would pay for for gas or diesel in the case of buses, uh, you're now paying for not their term but power by the hour in effect. So I, I, I like that I like this piece and, and where where it shows that we're going not just from the technology perspective but from the business model transformation perspective. There's one other thing I'd like to add, and that, and this I think is a big will be a big thing too. Um, is this, the technology is changing so quickly in this space? Right, battery life is getting longer, the buses are becoming more efficient, the designs are changing, and so this also allows. Um, I think last time I reported on this area, I think it uh, the the executives mentioned that usually a bus is in service about ten years, right? So if you look at how how long something's going to be in service. The leasing lets you kind of swap them out more quickly and and upgrade, if you will. So it kind of takes that whole, should I invest, you know, should I buy now or should I wait till next year when it's a better model? So that that also, I think, is going to be a great driver, um, again, um, of the space. So watch it. Another piece that I thought was interesting and provocative was a piece by our intrepid and longtime columnist, Ellen Weinreb, who writes talent show, uh, looking at at the role of, of, of people and talent inside companies when it comes to sustainability. She wrote, I'm sure, in connection with International Women's Day, which was, I guess, a week ago, uh, a piece called Why Business Needs Women to Lead on the Sustainable Development Goals. It's really interesting, and this is a report that came out of the Business and Sustainable Development Commission that uh, looks at, you know, where, where, where are those uh, points of intersection where women really can drive this? And I think one of the, yeah, so the, the, the point that really came through for me was, right, so equity and, and gender equity in particular is a big underlying factor in all of these goals. And yet, um, many of the people in charge of the strategy, um, the corporate strategy, for addressing the the sustainable development goals in some way, so the leaders driving that aren't necessarily women. So the 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 whole idea of this report and and piece is to make sure that that perspective is really um, and really part of the the planning process. We've got 13 years to get there, right? These these things are pegged against 2030, and we need both sexes, if you will, to get involved in, in defining what needs to happen and get moving. So there's, there's all sorts of strengths that women have that help play to this, right? They tend to think, they tend, you know, as if you want to make generalities to think longer term, they're sort of 
wired to be social and community oriented, nurturing, et cetera. And um, the, the call to action here is use that. You, companies should be using that that talent and expertise within within their walls, within their within their workforce, and um, going pointing and, and pulling in that perspective um, to help get there. These six uh, leadership qualities that Ellen writes about from the report uh, you were talking about: long term thinking, innovation, collaboration, transparency. Etc. Uh, it reminds me also that in the field of corporate sustainability, in other words, among the chief sustainability officers and vice presidents and others in the field, it's a very high percentage of women. It's at it's it's at least half, I would say, non scientifically. But when we have uh, our events or mem- or the members, the eighty. 80 or 85 companies that belong to the Green Biz Executive Network, and we have these nine meetings a year where we've got 20 to 25 people sitting around the table. You look around, and it's always at least half women. And and the case that several women who have you know been in this field for a long time have said to me is that you know there are again making over generalizations here or broad generalizations at least that um you know women are more collaborative women are more communicative women are, are more you know sort of bridge building and and problem solving in certain kinds of ways and those are all things that lend themselves very well to a profession where you don't have a lot of resources, so you have to make do on relationships and persuasion and collaboration. And, and so I thought that was interesting. But, but the other thing that I was thinking about is, is the finding that, uh, that Paul Hawken and his team came up with in the book Drawdown around the role of women in climate change. Drawdown, you probably recall, came out last April, and it, it lists uh, 80 solutions to climate change uh, and, and scientifically calculates the what it would how much we could those would contribute to actually drawing down carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and two of them in the top 10 which if you combine them actually would make them number one is is the role of women and girls and, and as, as Paul wrote uh, and, and the team wrote due to existing inequalities women and girls are disproportionately vulnerable to climate change impacts from disease to natural disaster at the same time women and girls uh, are pivotal to addressing uh, global warming successfully and, and and so how equity plays into solving climate change that's something we often think about uh, so I, I think that while we're maybe a week late in saluting International Women's Day, uh, hopefully not short on the uh, on the substance here, uh, and and I, I think Ellen's piece uh, is a, is a great one to uh, look at and and pass around. Yeah, and one final thought, uh, and and it's it's the term we in this in this case we both sexes, men and women, need to think about this. Um, I think that was the other point that Ellen made in the article, which is it's not just women. It's, it's allow women to lead and then be, be there by their side. So I think I want to just leave, leave us with that. Yep. Well, let's move on to the third story we're going to talk about, which is from Robert Nuttall and Sean McKnight, who are partners at uh, Fortitude Partners. And uh, this article is a third in a series uh, by uh, our friends at BSR on how corporate sustainability professionals can work across departments. This is about how to use your company's most powerful tool to change the world. And that tool in question here is brands. You know, how can brands be critical player in 
sustainability and uh, you know getting the attention and buy-in from from really the world. I, I have to say that I you know I, I approach this with more than a little skepticism. The the whole brands can save the world approach to things. Um, that was a, a meme from well. 25, maybe 20, maybe 15 years ago around the power of brands, you know, and, and communications. And, and the reality is, is that, is that, yeah, I mean, a lot, there are a, a small number of brands that, that have taken the lead. And I'm sure uh, you and me and all of our listeners could recite in unison a lot of their names that have been very familiar that show up in our pages and in and, and other places as, as leaders. But there's a lot of work being quietly done by, uh, you know, maybe companies that are branded in the B2B space. But beyond that, as, I, as I've often said, so much of the work that companies are doing, some of the best work that companies are doing, they're not even talking about. So uh, I, I you know, don't mean to get off on a rant there, but I, just, I, I do approach this. But I also understand the power of communications and the power of brands and, and the power particularly of brands that we haven't heard from before on climate change and sustainability in general to to stand up and be and, and, and be heard. And that's where I think the power is, is, is not the same old brands, but some new ones coming to the table. And that, that's a great segue. I, I, one of the things, one of the comments in the story, it's from a survey, right? But brands must share not only what they stand for, but what they stand up for. Now, I'm thinking about all of the companies, to use a very not sustainability-oriented example, but with the gun debate, gun control debate. And, and I don't know, there's this consumer awareness that hasn't been there before. They care um, what certain companies think about social issues. And um, there's just certain things that they're going to stand up that they're going to look for from, from the companies that they support. Um, we've, we've heard more about consumers boycotting brands that um, they don't agree with on a, a particular issue. Now, I don't know if that boycott lasts longer than a few weeks. I don't know. And I, I, I share your skepticism there. But there seems to be this, um, if you will, a little bit more of a woke consumer that, that is paying attention a little bit more. So maybe maybe that's part of the I don't know if we're hitting a tipping point where we're, maybe there's a there's always tipping point cycles. Um, but for me, the Me Too movement, the awareness of people in looking at social issues. Uh, I think one of the, my, you know, I will say one of the, the best CEOs out there as far as being very vocal about what his company believes is um, Mark Benioff from Salesforce. I mean, he, he, he's out there, he's commenting, he, he's not afraid to piss people off that might not agree with him. He, he is out there talking about what his company believes every day on Twitter and, um, and doing things about it. You know, when, when they had this whole big debate about whether they were paying women, um, equally within, within the company, he's like, you know what? I don't know. Let's look at that. And he, they looked at it and it, it was true and they fixed it. You know, they adjusted the salary. So I, just, I, I think there's a, a, I'd love to see more CEOs do this. So like when you talk about a brand, you know, who's the face of that brand, the CEOs need to get involved. I think more, um, and maybe that's the call to action for, for chief sustainability officers um, is to get the non-sustainability executives talking about this more, tying compensation to it and so forth. But anyway. Yeah, no, I will give you, you'll get no argument for me on the, on the importance of CEOs 
to to speak out on on these issues. And and every sustainability executive, um, you know, if you put uh, you know, what are your top three wishes? Uh, you know, if you the proverbial genie in the bottle, and you get three wishes, um, one of them will be for more resources, money, and and people. But one of them will definitely be about getting the CEO to to speak up and stand up on this. In in you know, ninety five percent of companies, and that's that's different from the brand piece, where the you know, using the power of advertising and marketing and and communications in general. Uh, and you know, packaging even to to communicate some of these things. You know, I mean, I hope you're right. I'm not sure at a tipping point. I am. Maybe it's a leaning point um, <laughs> that could lead to a tipping point, or you know. But uh, you know, I keep hearing about the millennials are going to save us because they they care and they're paying attention and all that good stuff. Um, I really, 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 really want to believe that, and I haven't seen it. As much yet, the amazing badass millennials we have working in the Green Biz office, notwithstanding, but they, I think they're an exception. They're in the Bay Area. They're working for Green Biz, and so they're not typical in that regard. So we'll we'll see where this goes. I mean, I would love for this piece to be to be heralding a new era of of brand centric. Uh, activism or advocacy on behalf of a more sustainable world. Hope springs eternal. I'll look forward to seeing that happen. One of the people we had the pleasure of listening to at, at Climate Day this week was Gina McCarthy, former EPA administrator. Gina, one of the things you said that I, I just found fascinating is that you're still pretty optimistic about uh, the state of environmental affairs, at least from in the United States, from a policy perspective, political perspective. Please explain. <laughs> well, Joel, I am pretty positive. I guess I, I take a long view of things. I know that I disagree with much of what is going on in Washington, D.C. and at EPA these days with with announcements of rollbacks. But, you know, I know that that right now those rollbacks haven't really happened and there's opportunities for the public to speak and there's going to be opportunities for the courts to look at it. But that's not where my hope comes from. That's sort of a stopgap measures. You know, my hope comes from the fact that, that I know in the environmental world most of the action has really always happened at the grassroots level. It's trickled up. It's the opposite of trickle-down economy. This is triple-up environmentalism. Where it started at grassroots levels, states get active, regions get active, and the federal government is the last in the game. And so we don't have to think of these years where EPA seems to be, you know, taking a pass at these issues as, as you know, the end of the story. It's really not. We're continuing to make progress. And I think from the perspective, Joel, of what you do and why I'm here, is that businesses really are participating and thinking about their role in society what they should stand for, what their values should be, what their brand should stand for. And they're seeing that it's important for them to sort of participate in this. And they are in ways that I really have never seen before. And that's really hopeful. What would you like to see the business community do more of? I think I'd like to, to, to uh, have them continue to set goals for themselves 
make those goals transparent, have accountability associated with them, because often we struggle with knowing whether or not someone's really doing what they've promised to do, and they should be like everybody else. It put put the, the information out so people can judge. And I really think that people need to stop, CEOs need to, to look at their, their place in the supply chain. They really need to not just look at their, their own boundaries, but you know, look up and down their supply chain to see how they can influence others and bring them along. But I think also you're seeing the investment community move out. It's not just the businesses themselves, announcements by BlackRock, that they're really going to start looking at whether or not businesses are investing in social issues and really being part of society. So I want a real culture change in the business community that we call it at Harvard, the culture of health. I want them to think about their health of their employees, their communities, their place in the world and, and act like everybody else. You know, I don't think of my little house in, in Jamaica Plain as being, the, as being bounded and I'm isolated. And no, no company should look at themselves that way either. What about in the political sphere? Do you think there's a, still a role for companies to play? And if so, is that at the U.S. national level? Or should companies be looking more at the state and local levels? No, I think they have to look at all levels because oftentimes you can have much more influence in your own communities because, because often you are the job supplier. You're an important figure. And so they do engage to think that they never do is wrong. They engage when they think they may be hurt. What I want them to do is to engage when they can help, when they can really push forward. And, and I think industry, based on just the reaction to the idea that we would pull out of Paris, made it very clear that some, the biggest companies in, in, uh, in the United States, and, and many of them that do international uh, business, understand that climate change isn't something you can ignore. It, it as, it's already interrupting businesses. It's already making it very challenging. And so I, th I think we just need to rely on them to be part of folks that look at the science that speaks to it, because they can't pretend. They have a business to run. They can't ignore the, the issue of climate change, and they don't. You're teaching at Harvard in the School of Public Health and involved with a number of things in public health. What do you see as, as the conversation that you're trying to, to really foment at Harvard around public health and, and climate and environmental protection? Well, I, I want people to connect health and climate and sustainability. You know, they are all so interrelated, and it worries me that many in this country, in fact, most people understand that the climate's happening, they just don't take it personally. <laughs> You know, and we did in the environmental world a long time ago when we made such progress because you could see it, feel it, taste it. But just because it's climate change, it doesn't mean that you're going to be somehow protected from their impacts. So I just don't think we've done a very good job at explaining that climate change is a, is a direct threat to public health and an indirect threat and a threat to the very existence of human beings on the planet. So we're not taking action on public health because we want to keep the planet healthy. We want to keep us healthy and, I, and we want to protect our kids' future. That's what I want to make clear to people. That's what I want to, I want to translate the science in ways that people understand that it's about them, their families, and our collective 
ability to prosper on this planet. To, to paraphrase Tip O'Neill, all sustainability is local. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for being here, for talking with, with us, and for delivering the really, really hopeful message that you did here at Climate Day. Uh, Gina McCarthy, former EPA administrator, now at Harvard School of Public Health. Thanks, Gina. Thanks, Joel. You're doing a terrific job yourself. I appreciate it. Many of us still think of drones as personal gadgets, something that you might see flying over a park or a a playground. Last week, I even glimpsed one while I was out scouting for whale breaches and scuba diving. But this technology will also have an enormous impact in the corporate world. Consider this statistic from the Federal Aviation Administration. The number of commercial drones in the United States is expected to grow by a factor of 10 over the next half decade, from about 42,000 drones in 2016 to more than 420,000 by 2021. Indeed, there are numerous applications already being evaluated in the power sector, in particular for handling and automating various maintenance tasks related to renewable energy assets. Joining GreenBiz 350 with an update on the possibilities is our new senior writer and analyst, Katie Fernbacher. Katie, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Heather. Great to be here. It's great to have you uh, on staff. I'm so excited to be working with you again. We shared our, our brief moment at Fortune. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, I you spoke with this week with one of the startups in this space. They're called, uh, I think, Aeroans. Um, and you mentioned that they're experimenting with uh, various applications. So tell us a little bit more about this startup and what it's trying to accomplish. Right. So Aaron's is a Latvian startup that now uh, has come over to the Bay Area based in San Jose. And I spoke with the founder, Danis Cruz, this week, and he told me a little bit about their drone technology. So Unlike some of the, you know, the drone that you saw over the park um, or at the playground, the Aeroans makes this very powerful drone that can be used for different commercial applications. And in particular, I talked with him about the drone that they're using to de-ice wind turbines, which is particularly fascinating. So the drone um, flies up kind of to the top of the turbine, you know, it could be hundreds to a thousand feet tall. Some of these wind turbines are huge. Um, And then it's got a nozzle that it sprays liquid all along the blade to make sure that the ice is removed from the wind blade. Um, And that is particularly helpful for the wind farm because it can remove the ice and it makes the wind turbine more efficient and produce more power. So uh, Danis was telling me that in some cases it can boost power by up to 20%, which is pretty amazing. And I believe we have him talking about this. So in his own words, here's Danis. During the winter when uh, humidity is rising and uh, the temperature is really low, The ice is building up on things. Uh, The same is happening also on those wind blades. So wind blades are becoming too heavy and they cannot spin. That's one thing. The other thing is it's dangerous. So sometimes uh, when the the blade is spinning, uh, the blade tip reaches up to 150 miles per hour. So imagine if that uh, tip is throwing some ice things in the sky. So it flies really far and it's dangerous. So in most cases, they just stop the turbines. 
and uh, there are turbines with uh, heated uh, heating systems in the in the blades, but they are expensive, and and uh, not so many companies are providing them, and uh, it's expensive to use them uh, or up, uh, or install them on those blade uh, on those turbines. So we have created uh, easy to use, really safe technology. How to take off that ice from those blades? So basically, the drone goes up, electricity and water comes from the ground, and we fly near the the, the blade and we apply the hot heated water on those blades. So so the ice is melting off and 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 uh, just falling down. And the water supply, uh, it can it, it could be uh, heated on the ground. It can be mixed with some kind of chemicals like biodegradable uh, chemicals, which are helping to to melt the uh, the, the ice. And that's just one part of it, what we can do. Uh, the other part is applying coatings, uh, special coatings on the blades, which are not allowing uh, that the humidity and the water is sticking to it. So we make for the water not possible to, to stick that to that blade and build up the, the ice on, on the blades. So it's even more uh, vital and it's even better solution than just to wait when the ice has built up already and then uh, to, to heat it off, uh, take it off. Uh, we suggest that uh, before the winter season, uh, we apply the coatings so the ice is not sticking on, on it. So I'm just curious, you know, what what do they feel like, what is the value proposition for a developer? Um, you know, what is it that they get out of deploying this technology? Is there some kind of cost savings or efficiency savings? Yeah, so for the wind power company, you know, they can boost the power of each wind turbine and, you know, produce mo- more power over the course of the day by removing the ice. The other thing that the... Um, that the drone can do is it can clean the wind turbines. So uh, Danis was telling me that in Texas, there's a particularly bad problem with bugs and dirt getting on the wind blades. So the wind power developer can, you know, use these drones to clean the blades. um, And then that can also reduce, you know, friction on the turbine and can produce more power for the company. And, you know, more power over time means um, lower cost of energy. And so actually that one, that is one of their first markets they plan in the United States, right? Texas? Correct. Texas, um, they're looking at up in the the north, uh, northern part of the U.S. and Canada for the de-icing application. They're also looking globally in in Europe as well. So they've talked to companies in in Spain and, you know, really they're they're kind of looking globally at this point. So that's wind. Um, Any other applications that you can talk about, like, for example, solar? Are they going to be working on solar uh, fields? Right. Yeah, so Danis was telling me that their cleaning drone, just the first application, is this wind turbine, but they are particularly interested um, in working with solar panel developers and solar power companies. So, you know, the idea is that the the drone could fly over solar panels and clean those in in a more automated fashion where, you know, a lot of solar panel power companies are having um, workers manually clean those solar panels every couple of months or so, which, you know, is costly. So this is, that's one company, um, Aeron's, it, you know, are there other companies emerging in this space? Like what other app, I guess we'll take it in two, two, two tranches here. What other applications um, do you see emerging? 
and what other companies? Okay, yeah. So, so solar companies in general are starting to look at um, drones for di- different applications. So, you know, one application is using a drone to go hover over an undeveloped solar panel farm. And so SunPower is a company that has um, a handful of drones that have been doing this. So the drone flies over um, this kind of vast field, takes aerial imagery, and then they use algorithms to figure out what the best design and setup of the solar panel field would be, you know. So this corner could fit this many solar panels and this area needs, you know, the transmission line and this section, you know, is a farmer's land. So it's kind of like this game of like solar Tetris that the the drone is playing while it's looking over the solar panel field. So that's one super interesting application. The other thing is um, that uh, drones can fly over a solar panel field that's already installed and it can use infrared cameras to look down over the solar panels and see if, you know, say there's a solar panel that isn't operating or, you know, say some of the wiring is overheating, something like that. The infrared uh, imagery can detect, you know, hot spots or, or dark spots. And um, that's one area that solar power companies are actually starting to use drones. And there's also, um, in terms of the drone application, wind companies are, are using drones as well. Um, cleaning is actually a rather new and unusual application. So wind um, companies currently are opting for drones to do maintenance, so mostly inspections. So, you know, a lot of times the person on the ground will be controlling the drone. It'll fly up and they'll do an inspection of the different gear and the blades. And, you know, there's um, new companies that are starting to build technologies where it can automatically go up in, in a robotic fashion. The drone can fly up and it can do the inspection without any human involvement at all. So that's kind of the next step. So, Katie, thanks for checking in. I look forward to watching this space with you. Thanks so much, Heather. Great to be here. That's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, take a look at our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can always hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We'd love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back next week with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>